0: others to come and to hear about the precious gift that was born and given unto us god we just ask your blessing upon this service father we pray that you would just be as you're in our presence god that you would just minister unto us god we just pray that you would open your word and touch our hearts god that you would challenge us that you would encourage us in our walk god we just look to you to do great things we just ask these things in jesus precious name amen
1: In yonder stall At whose feet the shepherds fall Who is he that stands and wees At the grave where Lazarus sleeps Tis the Lord, a wondrous story Tis the Lord, the King of glory At his feet in dark Gethsemane, who is he and Calvary's rose ask for blessings on his foes. Tis the Lord, a wondrous story, tis the Lord, the King of glory, at his feet we humbly fall. to hear.
2: While we are receiving the offering here in our service, let me share a great need, your prayers. Please pray with us that God would use and bless the Foothills Baptist Gospel Hour. This program is a ministry of Foothills Baptist Church of Loveland. If the Lord would lay on your heart to donate to the Foothills Baptist Gospel Hour, we will provide our contact information
3: at the end of this program. We will now return to the service. Luke chapter 18, please, for our scripture reading this morning. Luke chapter 18, and we'll begin in verse 18 and read down through verse 27. And let's stand together, please, as we read God's word. Luke chapter 18, verse 18. And a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? None is good, save one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor thy father and thy mother. And he said, All these have I kept from my youth up, Now when Jesus heard these things, he said unto him, Yet lackest thou one thing, Sell all that thou hast, and distribute unto the poor, And thou shalt have treasure in heaven, And come and follow me. And when he heard this, he was very sorrowful, For he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he was very sorrowful, he said, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they that heard it said, Who then can be saved? And he said, The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your many mercies to us. We thank you for a beautiful Lord's Day. We thank you for God's house where we can come and hear uh, God's man preach God's word. We pray your blessing on the message today. We pray that you would speak to hearts. We pray if there's anyone here today who does not know Christ, that they will come to know him. And Lord, we pray for each Christian that you'd help us to love you better, to serve you better, because we've been here today. Thank you again for your mercies, and we pray your blessing upon this service. In Jesus' name, amen. The spiritual
0: bankruptcy of a rich man. What, what a text. I believe there's three prevailing questions that most likely every person around the world asks in their own language to themselves in their own way at some time or the other. Question number one would be, how did life and everything begin? They have a question about origin. That's not just unique to uh, uh, the West and, and uh, uh, American people and maybe to some of the European. But in all probability, that is a question that humanity asks regardless uh, of their culture, their, their advancement in uh, civilization or whatever. But where did we come from? Second question they probably ask is, why are we here? I know that's a prevalent question here in America. It's a prevalent question in many other places around the world. What's our purpose in life? We're here, but why? The third question would be, what happens to us when we die? The first has to do with our origin. The second with our purpose in life. The third with destiny. And I believe this is a question that every person ought to ask and seek to get the right answer for. Here we have a young ruler. Uh, it's, uh, this particular event is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, I believe it's in Matthew he is referred to as a young ruler. And uh, he comes asking Jesus about this important question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Because he was concerned about what happens after life. What is going to be next and how can I be prepared for that? It is interesting in Matthew 19, the two words, good thing, what good thing can I do? So we would understand that he is like many people thinking there's something that he can physically do to inherit eternal life. Now, this is a a good question, even though there may be bad connotations behind it by trying to think we can work to earn our salvation. It is an important question that can help people get to the right answer. You'll find this question asked no less than two times in Acts. Acts chapter 2 and and Acts chapter 16. What shall we do to be saved? What shall we do to inherit eternal life? What shall we do? You see, life is a vapor as James talks about it. I realize that uh, as a child, it seems like time goes by so slowly. I remember that. And then all of a sudden, when we get busy as adults in life, it just vanishes. Where did the last five years go? Where did the last 10 years go? Where did the last 80 years go? Uh, and I don't know that it ever slows down. It hasn't for me. and uh, uh, But life is a vapor. And it can come to an end unexpectedly at any moment. Now, I I hear of those that that, uh, the process of dying is somewhat prolonged, and they may have an opportunity to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the goodness of our Lord. I remember uh, over the years of the ministry, there have been certain, uh, and it's mostly been men that I've dealt with, But certain men that had rejected God, defied God until they were dying and they knew their life was about to escape. And they called for this preacher and said, what must I do to be saved? And so we praise God that God is even gracious on the deathbed with that. But I don't know how many times I've heard how a life is just snuffed out that quickly. No opportunity to do anything. And so it is important. Because you and I do not know how our demise will take place to be sure we have this question resolved. You see, eternity is real. Heaven is real. Hell is real. Every person from Adam to the last person that will exist will spend eternity either in heaven or in hell. And God has defined what makes the difference. Now, don't come along and tell me that you can't believe in eternity, heaven, and hell because you believe in science and and you're more academic and more intellectual. The primary reason people do not believe in eternity, heaven, and hell is not because it doesn't match their intellect. It's because they want to reject God. They want to reject the idea that they will be accountable with their life and there, there is a judgment of life. Do you know what I find rather ironic? People that say... Well, I don't accept the Bible, and I don't believe there's a God, and I don't believe there's a heaven, I don't believe there's a hell. I I believe things more scientifically and uh, more intellectually, and uh, you, you can't prove that God exists or doesn't exist. And we'll have to agree just to take it into a science laboratory. You cannot do that. I believe God has given us evidence upon evidence to validate of his existence. They say, you can't prove there's a heaven or a hell. Nobody's, Literally nobody has come back to be able to validate one or the other or both. And so scientifically, we would have to say, no. But the Bible says, he that believeth must come in faith. And the Bible has given us sufficient evidences to believe and to have that faith. But do you know what's really troubling and ironic? So many of them that say, I can't believe in God, I can't believe in an eternity, I can't believe in heaven, I can't believe in hell, believe in some of the stupidest things. (laughs) Many of them will believe in evolution. Now, wait a minute, let's go back to your idea of science. You want science to prove it. Science has never proved evolution. For something to be scientifically proven, it has to be observable. Nobody's ever observed a a chimpanzee turning into a man. It has to be repeatable. None of that has ever been repeated. And interestingly enough, there are a multitude of atheistic scientists who now reject evolution saying it's impossible. But do you know what? They believe in all kinds of mystic religion, mystic ideas, an awful lot of stuff that comes out of uh, the exercises of yoga might be good, but the mysticism behind so much of it is is pagan, and they believe in all of that mysticism and everything that goes with it. And then they try to say, they can't believe this. Well, my friend, we don't believe you. (laughs) We understand that the reason you don't want to believe in the heaven or hell is because you don't want to be accountable to God. Now, we we do not laugh at that. I do not say that sarcastically. I say that with grieving in my heart because I still believe the most important question in life, what shall I do to inherit eternal life, is the question that that individual, you and I, must answer. Because God loved every man, woman, and child to make it possible through repentance and faith to have eternal life. Now, with that question set, maybe the next thing is, but where you go and to whom you go will make a difference whether you get the right answer or not. You can ask. You you, you could take today or over a period of weeks and go to every kind of church in our communities and ask them, what must I do to receive eternal life? And you're going to get a bunch of answers. And where you go makes a difference, whether you get the right answer or not. Let me give you this illustration. You may go downtown and on the street... And ask a person, and who knows how high they are on marijuana or something else, and ask a person, is it really possible that a man can fly like a bird? And uh, you're searching for an answer to that? You want to know that answer? And this particular person says, oh yes it is. And you can even prove it yourself. If you go up Highway 34 on your way to Estes Park and into the narrows, and if you will climb to one of the highest ridges in those narrows, and once you get to the top, take a deep breath and, and hold your hands out and jump from that, you'll be able to soar down through the narrows and, and you'll have enough uplift to, to be able to soar all the way to Lake Loveland and land gracefully on the north shore. Folks, if you try that, you'll plop graveyard dead at the bottom. You will not fly. You see, it's important where you go to get your answers. And and so uh, uh, likewise, in this critical question of a greater significance than physical life if you get the wrong answer, you'll spend an eternity in hell. And so, this is not only the most important question a person will ever ask, but it is equally important that you go to the right source to get the right answer. In here, this young ruler ran and knelt at the feet of Jesus. In the Mark record, the gospel of Mark, in that record, it says that he came running and he knelt before the Lord Jesus Christ to find the answer to what shall I do to inherit eternal life. There's a lot of religious people in places you can go today and get the wrong answer. You could go to some church organizations and some religious people. And... uh, Uh, one will say, well, you know what? You really don't need to worry about that because God is such a loving God, he would never send anybody to hell. My friend, that is a lie. That is not what the Bible says. You go to Revelation 20 and verses 12 through 15. That's Revelation 20 and verse 12 through 15. You go and read that passage and and you see by the time everything is finished and the great white throne judgment that takes place of the lost and when it's done, whosoever's name is not found in the Lamb's book of life, that's talking about whosoever's not saved is cast into an eternal lake of fire. That's what the Bible says. It is the same loving God who is also a holy and a just God that had to destroy all the population except eight with the Noahic flood. It is the same loving God who had to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and certain of those cities and surrounding with brimstone and fire because of their moral perversion and wickedness. And so if somebody tells you, and do you know what? There's a lot of people that, that want to believe that answer so they don't have to do anything else about their life. They can live their life in whatever way, whether it be in a good way or a morally perverted way. They want to be able to live their life however they want to live and think they're going to get away with it. But it's a lie. Another will say, well, you just join our church. If you join our church, our church, uh, and have church membership, you'll go to heaven, and you'll be okay. The Bible doesn't say that. The local church is important, and being a part of the right kind of local church is important, biblically speaking. But I don't care whether you join this church, that Foothills Baptist Church, or any other church around the world Being a member of the church doesn't save you. You can go a little further and ask somebody and they'll get a little more serious. And they'll say, well, if you are sprinkled or baptized by our church, then you'll go to heaven. They make the false assumption that somehow sprinkling a little one or an elderly one will get them into heaven. That's another lie. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that the, the ordinance of baptism, we believe that is by immersion, the word baptize literally means to immerse, but out there in all of the religious world, whether you believe it is sprinkling or immersion, the same thing is true. Baptism doesn't save you, it's another lie. And do you know what? There, there's going to be a lot of people. I mean, there's going to be a host of people that are trusting their baptism for salvation who've been lied to and they believe it and they'll spend an eternity in hell because they never did what Jesus Christ says we must do. And that means put our faith in Jesus Christ and him alone. This young ruler had the privilege of living in a time and a place to go to the living son of God. He went to the right place and the right person to ask this question. We cannot criticize him for that. I mean, there is no better person to go to to get the answer than the Lord Jesus Christ himself during this era of the ministry of Christ and before he laid his life down and before, uh, and then after he, he was crucified, buried, and rose and between being risen and ascended to heaven in those 40 days, there's no better person to go to than the Lord Jesus Christ to find the answer to this question. Now, Jesus Christ is the living word. John 1, 1. Christian, that's our favorite verse, isn't it? Obi. We, we've been working on that one. That's one of our little guys here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that's speaking of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. And so we know that Jesus Christ is the living Word. And we need to remember and recognize that the written Word and the living Word are 100% in unity. Some people will say, well, I know the Bible says that, but I don't think Jesus would say that. Yes, he would. There's no discrepancy to what Jesus believed or would have said is the living word between him and the written word. And so for those of us here at Foothills Baptist Church, it is the word of God And we use the translation that's been trusted over 400 years by Christians. But it is the word of God that we go to to find the answer for everything we believe and how we should live. It's the absolute authority, the final authority, and it's the word of God. Since we cannot personally go to the Middle East and find Jesus in in human form to ask this question, for you and I, we can come to the word of God and find the same answer as Jesus Christ would have given. Now, before we see the Lord's answer to this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Let's understand a little bit about this rich young ruler, which I believe will shed some light onto the answer that Jesus gave him. It appears that he really was a very good young man. He probably, now now Paul talked about when he was Saul and before he got saved, how how he was uh, just a a Pharisee, of Pharisee, and, and how he was a loyalist to the law. But he was pretty brutal and pretty violent and going around persecuting and killing Christians. We're not aware that this rich young ruler had that in his character or in his repertoire of behavior. You see, here's a a good young man, rich and good. He knew well enough to go to the right person for the answer. He wasn't going to the scribes anymore at this point. He wasn't going a variety of places. He, he was the kind of guy that knew the right place and the right person to find the answer. And not only that, I believe he understood the, the, the question was of such urgency and necessity that he came running in, in the gospel of Mark when it uh, records this. And, and this is not a contradiction. It's just that each author adds a little bit to the story to give us a more full, fuller picture. But he says he came running to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it would appear to me there was an urgency within his heart to want to know the answer to that. And he realized the significance of it that he needed to know it quickly. But also he had respect and a reverent attitude before Christ. Because again in the Gospel of Mark it says he came running and knelt before Jesus Christ. He was not like many of the Pharisees that came sauntering up with their arrogance and smug look. and, And asked critical questions to try to entrap him. Here was a rich young ruler that he knew the right place. He knew the urgency. He he had reverence and respect to Jesus Christ and it has absolutely no appearance that he was coming to try to cause a, a stumbling block or to catch him in a trap or anything like that. Here was a respectable young man that came to Jesus Christ, a good man. And he may very well have been devoutly religious from his youth. Because as we go into the answer, answer that the Lord first gives him, and he lists certain of the items of the law to live, he believed within himself that he had kept him from his youth up which would imply that he didn't turn 13 and become a rebel and and become the prodigal child of the family. But rather, as, as he was coming of age, it was important to him to keep the law, religiously speaking. It was important to him. Now, in those things that the Lord spoke of, I don't think he had yet grasped that it was more than just an act. It starts in the heart. Because when it was said, don't commit adultery, he probably could say, I've never committed that. But then the Lord took it a little further and he says, even if a man desires to commit it in his heart, he has committed it. And so he may not have grasped that and understood that. But here was a man that was devoutly religious and in the midst of such a life, you need to grasp this. Here's a man that thought good works and keeping the law could save him. Here's a man that not only thought that, but practiced it and tried to live it. And he was a good man. That There's nothing here that implies that he was a villain of some sort or a scoundrel of some sort. Everything here would imply and lead us to believe that he was a good, devoted, rich, religious man. But do you know what? Even in the midst of all that, he knew something was missing. Because why would he come to Jesus to find the answer? Self-righteousness. May, may make your pride feel good, but it will never give you a peace in the heart that only the new birth can give you. And so in all of his goodness, in all of that, in fact, in almost everybody that I've talked to, and I haven't talked to everybody that believes this way, but in almost everybody that I've talked to, that is putting their trust on one level or another on their good works will somehow, if you ask them, if you die right now, do you know for a fact you'll spend eternity in heaven? Almost inevitably, their answer will be something like this Well, I hope so. I hope my good works outweigh my bad. And that statement in itself says they know something's missing. And this rich young ruler, why, probably the majority of churches around the world would love to have somebody with this kind of character in their church. He, he, he might even be the, the, uh, the uh, sample and the example member of a church. But Lost. And he knew something was missing. Because he was willing to admit something was missing, he came to the right person, Jesus Christ, and asked the right question. Now let's see how the Lord Jesus Christ answered the young ruler's question. He first challenges that statement, Good Master. This rich young ruler comes to him and says, Good Master. And the Lord challenged him, he says, nobody is good but God. We use the term good a little differently today. But in that era, and in, in the essence of, of the understanding of the scribes and the Pharisees, and, and those that, that worked in, in, in the uh, dynamics of, of, the, of the law and, and uh, all of their worship, the term good was used only for God. And so as this young man was coming, he was challenging him and saying, are you sure you're calling me God? Are you sure I am God? Now we don't see any more on that, but I think he is challenging the motives of this question, not so much that the Lord didn't know what the motives were, but for the young man to examine his heart and his life about his own motives for asking the question. Here is the master teacher of how to witness to the loss at work. The Lord understood the Pharisees, the rulers, the scribes, and and all of those that were involved in the religious hierarchy of the temple. And they often sat around debating scripture and debating words and certain words within the scripture. I have to chuckle, uh, Typically at Bible college, those that are going in, in the missions major or pastoral major, whatever uh, of those majors. The, the common understanding is when, when these majors get to their sophomore year, they think they know it all scripturally. And the sophomores are the ones that sitting around debating all of these big theological terminologies and terms and passages. I remember, now, when I went to college, uh, my wife and I were married, we had three kids. I didn't have time for that, but I believe it was around Christmas time. We went to one particular gathering of some other uh, students, and there was two of them. And they were debating in a heated debate, which is the greater uh, command of the local church to glorify God or evangelism. I looked at that and I thought, "Haven't you got something better to debate? They're both of great importance. How do you, you you can't have one if you don't glorify God? You can't be any good at evangelizing the lost, and if you don't evangelize the lost, you can't glorify God. They they got it going together, and and I saw a little bit of what this was about, but they were this was the way they." sophomore or not, they would come together and they would debate all of these issues and the Lord was challenging him in his motive. Is this one of your latest issues you've been debating since I've been around? I don't know. I suppose I could compare this type of discussion would be like me and someone else who is not auto mechanics. I can look under the hood and tell you whether there's an engine there. (laughs) I I do know a little bit more than that. I could change the oil. I could change a fan belt. There's a few things, but uh, all I want to do is look underneath. See, there's an engine there, shut it, and drive it. I don't want to work on it. But uh, for me and somebody else to sit around and debate on the makeup of a piston and its values and its essence... Do we have to have this or the uh, the uh, crankshaft, which is more important in the engine and and debate that? But never know exactly where it fits in the engine or how to repair one in the engine. That's kind of an illustration of what they would sit around and do. And so the Lord was asking his motive in essence are you coming to ask this sincerely or is this one of the latest discussions that you're trying to figure out? Then the Lord gives him a list of commands to obey. Now do understand, we interpret what may be vague or seem like it contradicts another passage. We interpret those passages in light of very clear passages. To read this, just as it comes across, Uh, he says, what uh, must I do to inherit eternal life? And he asks, why call thou me good? There's none good, save one that is God. And then he goes on, thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor thy father and thy mother. And he said, all these have I kept from my youth up. And so one might get the impression that if you kept this part of the law you could inherit eternal life but you see what the Lord was doing he was setting a platform to expose the real heart of this rich young ruler and to get past and and he doesn't act like an arrogant person but it is pride that gets in the way And do you know, some people can be very proud without behaving like rude arrogance. And so he was behaving undoubtedly in a good way, but there was spiritual pride here that had to be penetrated. And that was keeping him from seeing the truth. And so as you look at this, you raise the question, does keeping those give you eternal life? If you will take very clear passages in scripture, you'll find Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and not of yourselves, not of works, lest any man should boast. Keeping the law is a matter of works. Titus 3, 5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but by the washing and renewing of the Holy Ghost. And so we understand that the Lord is not telling him if you keep these, you'll be saved. But he's telling him this to get him to where he realizes he is not keeping the law in its completeness. I believe it is James that says if you break the law in one part, you are guilty of the whole law. So it's not a matter of just being able to keep a part of the law. You have to keep the whole law perfect. And that's why it says in Romans 3.20, no flesh shall be justified by the keeping of the law. And the conclusion is nobody can keep the law perfectly. And here the Lord is using the law as a schoolmaster to expose to this man... The reality of Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. This man did not realize that he fully fell short of the glory of God, or that he was a sinner. God was using this method to demonstrate to this young ruler that Romans 5.12 said that that, uh, in Adam uh, we have all sinned, for all have sinned. And we understand out of Romans five twelve that every person has inherited the sin nature with its curse. And not only do we have a sin nature, but every person has sinned individually. And he was using the law as a schoolmaster to help bring him to that conclusion. He first used what the man thought he had kept, then he used what the man knew he could not keep. The Lord in in dealing with the commandments did not deal with thou shalt not covet, because that's where the man's sin was. He coveted his riches and his comfort. He did not quote, it was said, what is the greatest commandment? And Christ gives the, the two greatest commandments. The first is to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. That encompasses the first four commandments. And then he said, love thy neighbor as thyself. That encompasses the latter six. So here the man revealed, the rich young man, as good as he was, Failed by coveting and not loving his neighbor as himself. He was very rich in earthly treasures, but impoverished with heavenly treasures. This is the spiritual bankruptcy of a rich man. Here is a man that knew something that was missing and hoped to learn the answer, what he could do to secure eternal life. And then the answer seemed absolutely unreasonable to be asked being a part of of the rulers and the rabbinical, listening to the rabbinical teaching and all of that, the rabbis taught giving alms to the poor was a good thing and a necessary thing, but you don't give your all. In fact, they had a maximum that you could give only one-fifth of your possession and your wealth or your riches to the poor and keep the rest, and it was illegal for them to give it all. When I looked at that, I had to read it twice. But supposedly that was the policy, the rule, the code of that time. This man thought he could inherit eternal life, but what he did, he did not realize that it was by the grace of God. Here he learned what I started to quote previously, Romans 3.20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Here was a young man that realized that he coveted his money more than eternal life. Now, folks... You can't give up and give away everything and get eternal life. The Lord used this to teach him the reality of his heart. But I will say this, when we get eternal life, it changes. Saving grace is a transforming grace. It totally changes our purpose, our outlook in life. And it will change how you manage your wealth. It changes how you look at life. The man walked away very sorrowful. And we understand that not all sorrow leads to repentance unto faith. I'm not sure the why of his sorrow, but maybe it just grieved him deeply that he couldn't have have life his way and have eternal life. And folks, that never works. The Lord turns and adds one more lesson for the disciples, and that's the difficulty for the rich to be saved. When Jesus saw that he was very sorrowful, he said, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. I remember as a young boy hearing some preachers preach on, from this, and they would get so graphic about the the Needle's Eye Gate and how they would take the burdens off the camel, and the camel would have to get down on its knees and just scrunch its way through that Needle's Eye Gate to get into the city. This is not talking about the Needle's Eye Gate. The Needle's Eye Gate was not discovered or even mentioned until several centuries after the life of Christ. If that's what Christ was talking about, then it would mean that one way or another, a rich man could work his way into heaven. What he's talking about here is the largest known land animal that had been seen in the land of Israel. And the smallest instrument used by the people, a needle. My friend, I heard one guy put it this way while I was in Bible college. He says, you can string that camel out for a mile. You're still not getting it through that needle. It's impossible. And that's what the Lord goes on to say. Now, understand, the disciples responded and said, wow. Because in their thinking, if you're rich and if you're keeping the law, you're the most likely to go to heaven and have eternal life. That was the mentality. And the disciples, they, they responded like, Wow, who then can be saved if they can't be saved? And the Lord gave the answer. He said, with man, it's impossible. And the fact of the matter is, it's impossible regardless of your economic status. I don't care whether you're the wealthiest of wealthy or the most impoverished. With man, it's impossible. And then he said, but with God, it's possible. The only way salvation is possible is through the grace of Jesus Christ. And it is to come with a heart of repentance and put your faith in Jesus Christ and receive eternal life as a gift. Nothing more, nothing less. No harder than that. Nothing more complicated than that. But do understand, Jesus did not say that no rich person could be saved. Turn over, before I close here, to 1 Corinthians. I believe it's important that I read this passage. 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, and verse 26. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh... Not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish thing of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. God did not say not any. He said not many. And it's not a failure on God's behalf. It's a failure just like this rich young ruler that had a higher value of his riches than he did of having eternal life. The prevailing lesson is you cannot rely on your riches or your goodness to inherit eternal life. How tragic is the spiritual bankruptcy of this rich man, this good man. But it was a tragedy of his own making by his own choice. He chose To turn away and walk away. We never hear or see of him again. In the rest of the scriptures. Eternal life is a gift from God. Given to those who come. With repentance towards God. And faith in Jesus Christ. Simple as that. Who or what. Are you trusting? It is. Neither is there salvation in any other name given among men whereby ye must be saved it is only through Jesus Christ Father we come to you as we close and Lord I pray that you would use this message it may be that someone is here this morning and listening to this message that is putting their trust on their goodness it may be a very good person a very kind person But unfortunately, they've allowed their heart to be deceived, and that deception will take them into an eternity of hell. And so, God, I plead and I pray that their eyes could be open, and there would be brokenness in their heart to realize that their goodness or their riches cannot secure eternal life. But it is only by the grace of God. Use that, I ask, this morning, Father. Do a work today. And Father, let us, the, the text said that Jesus loved this man. Let us share with that same kind of love for those in great need spiritually. Now we give you praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.
2: Thank you for listening to the Foothills Baptist Gospel Hour. For more information about Foothills Baptist Church of Loveland, Colorado, you may visit our website at foothillsbaptistchurch.com. If you wish to donate to this radio ministry, please make your check payable to Foothills Baptist Church and mail to PO Box 771, Loveland, Colorado, 80539. Or you may go to our website at foothillsbaptistchurch.com and click on the Give tab. We would love to have you visit our regular Sunday services with morning worship at 930, Sunday school at 1050, and Sunday evening at 5 o'clock. And until we meet again, be sure you are
1: my faith. Yes, my faith in Jesus above.
4: An inside story behind a Christmas song.
1: Silver Bands, Silver
4: bands. The song was first sung by 20th century show business icon and wisecracking comedian Mr. Bob Hope with Miss Marilyn Maxwell in the 1951 movie The Lemon Drop Kid. Songwriters Mr. Ray Evans and Mr. Jay Livingston now detail the circumstances surrounding the writing of Silver
5: Bells. We were asked to write a Christmas song for Bob Hope to do in a movie called The Lemon Drop Kid. This idea didn't thrill us, but uh, uh, we had to do it. So reluctantly, we sat down. We wrote a song called Tinkle Bell, about the little tinkly bells you hear around Christmas. And we thought, that'll fit the picture. You'll never hear it again That'll be the end of that. But I went home from work that night, and my wife said, what you doing in school today, or worse that effect? And I said, we wrote a song called Tinkle Bell. But she explained the double meaning in the word tinkle, which had not occurred to us. So I came back in the studio the next day and I said to Ray, we cannot use Tinkle Bell. And he said, why not? And I said, because tinkle has a double meaning. And we threw it away. Now we started to write something else. Well, we kept coming back to Tinkle Bell. We stole lines of lyric from it. We stole pieces of music because we liked them out of it. And we ended up with Tinkle Bell exactly as we'd first written it. We just changed one word. Instead of Tinkle Bell, it became Silver Bells. Soon it will be
1: Christmas. And this is a
5: song we didn't want to write. There's a moral there somewhere. From the MusicalSoundReview.com,
4: I'm Francis Chick Powers.
6: I'm Joe Jaquin, CEO of the Patriot Trading Group. And I would like to encourage everyone to make sure they are prepared financially as the Federal Reserve continues to destroy the value of the dollar. Since the closing of the gold window in 1971, the Federal Reserve has led the way in the explosion of debt and the devaluing of your money. They openly say that they need 2% inflation, which simply means they hope to devalue your money and they want to do this every single year, year after year. I know it's hard to understand, but the Federal Reserve believes in prosperity through debt and growth via the devaluation of your future. To learn more about how to protect yourself, visit us at allamericangold.com or call us at 800-951-0592 and protect yourself against the devaluing of your money.
4: Any major disaster, especially weather-related, when the power goes out, can cause people to suddenly panic. Within hours, grocery store shelves in your area can be picked clean. Food supply lines get interrupted, and food is hard to find. At that point, it's too late to do anything about it. You must survive only on the food you already have in your home or risk waiting for the government to respond while you're standing in food lines. So ask yourself, do you have enough food in your home to last for weeks or months?
0: This is Mark Call, host of the Come Out of Her, My People show here on
2: the Roar of the Rockies. Tune in to discover why, whether it's the law of the land or
0: scripture, what you've probably heard it says is not what is written. It's time to come out of all of that.
6: You're listening to the Roar of the Rockies, KHNC, 1360 AM, Johnstown, Greeley, Loveland, Fort Collins.
1: Friends. Chick
4: With an inside story behind a Christmas song.